Father, we have sung some pretty demanding words, but we ask that you would indeed take all of us, that you would teach us, change us, and transform us through your word as we continue in worship. Through Christ Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Can you imagine getting on an airplane and discovering that the pilot and the crew have no idea where you're going, where the plane's going? Or or choosing to root for a football team and discovering that the quarterback doesn't know how to play the game, doesn't even know how to win? Or... Signing up for a course and getting to class the first day and finding out that the professor has no idea what the class is about, has no idea what's going to be taught in the class, and has no idea where you're going to go from there. I suspect that the uh, academic records office might have a rush on uh, drop ad slips when that was all finished up that first day. Life doesn't make sense if there isn't some purpose. We, we live with purpose all the time in, in the things that we do every day and, and we do so much of it subconsciously we don't think about it but there's always purpose to the things that we do. Without purpose we wander aimlessly. No direction, no goal. And just as it's true of us as individuals it's true of the church. We need not just to have a purpose, but to know our purpose. And so over the past few years, the elders have been working on uh, putting together purpose and vision statements for us as a church. And and the the result of that is what we believe God has led us to, and it's this bookmark that we distributed last week. And there should be some more of them in the pew rack in front of you, unless the people at the other services earlier today took them all. Hopefully not. There's some on the back table, if not. But we want you to take them. And, and we want you to, to look at them and use them and, and read over it and, and ponder it. Because we believe that God is leading us to this purpose as a church. And you'll notice as in, that, in the first part of that vision statement, it talks about the atmosphere, the kind of church we want to be. And we want to be a church of openness and a church of, of welcome, a church that moves people toward healing. A place in which weary souls can come and find rest and strength We want to be a hospital for the needy, not a spiritual country club for the elite. And a hospital in which we find healing and help and and growth, even though it means that we probably are going to be challenged in ways that we might rather not be challenged. To think about things in different ways than we might normally think of them. To think of new things or maybe old things to be confronted with our sin, to be called to holy living, to sacrifice for others, to learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The first step in that is worship. And we talked about that last week. And the second step is discipleship. That's what we want to think about today. Discipleship begins with the scriptures. If we're going to be a learning church 
And we need to be a church in which we submit to the word of God as the foundation for all that we know. When you contemplate who God is and all that God has done, you're struck by the incomprehensible nature of God. The psalmist says, Your knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The 4th century theologian Gregory of Nyssa wrote, How can our mind, which always operates on a dimensional image, comprehend a nature that has no dimension? The hymn writer penned, Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. The contemporary hymn writer Tim Hughes puts it this way, Almighty God, in every way, you are above and beyond understanding. And then we turn to Psalm 103, and David says of this mysterious and incomprehensible God, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Apostle Paul prays for believers that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And John, speaking of Jesus in in the introduction to his gospel, says no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. It's through the scriptures that we know God and what it means to be a disciple of God. And though God is incomprehensible in one way, he has revealed himself to us so that we can actually know him in his word. And so the Psalms declare, how can a young person keep their way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Jesus says in the passage we read earlier from Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The learning of Jesus begins with an attitude of humility and submission to the word of God as the foundation for all that we know and believe. If discipleship doesn't start here with the word of God, then what makes us any different from anybody else who believes anything else? It's the scriptures that set us apart at the core. We know God. We know about God. We know what God desires of us. And we're only a church of learning disciples when we submit ourselves individually and corporately to the scriptures as the final and true word upon which our discipleship is based. But a learning church is not just a church that submits itself to the word of God. It's also a church in which we submit to other Christians who help us understand the word of God. Now, the church doesn't make us like Christ. But in the church, we're reminded of truths that on our own, we would probably ignore, or at least do our best to avoid. The church reminds us that our natures are bent and skewed and crooked, that we're sinful. That on our own, we can't do anything about it, or much of anything. But the church also reminds us that Christ can do something about it, and he has. And the purpose statement acknowledges that that we are about learning from each other. 
And the church communicates these truths of the word of God and what it means to be a disciple in a variety of ways to a variety of Christians. One thing, the most obvious thing, is that we learn from each other here and now. If all we learn is from our own experiences and our own interpretations, then we're going to have a tendency to believe and receive the things that we agree with, the things that confirm what we like, the things that look most like us. But when we're committed to teaching each other, sharing life with each other, committing ourselves to each other, then we have opportunities to be stretched and challenged and grow. We're like iron sharpening iron knocking off some of those self-absorbed, self-centered tendencies. We need each other. We learn from each other. It started as as a part of my uh, doctoral program, but it's something that I have continued ever since then because it's one of the most valuable and invigorating things that I do. I, I call them sermon focus groups. I have two groups of an eclectic array of representatives of the congregation who meet, each group meets with me once a month and we talk about sermons that I'm going to be preaching in the future. And in the course of those conversations, you know, as I talk to them about what I'm thinking for the sermon and the things that are coming to me, they will help me understand things that don't seem clear. They will help me uh, focus sometimes. They will help me with things that they may feel I've misinterpreted. And I can guarantee you there are things in virtually every sermon that come up in the groups and are ideas from people in the group that are sprinkled throughout virtually every one of my sermons. They challenge me. They help me. Not just to hopefully be a better preacher, but to be a better Christian because of our time together, because of those groups. And, and, and we, we do this with each other in a variety of ways. Sunday school classes and Bible studies and, and prayer groups and small groups. and We do all of these things because we're serious about Jesus' command to come and to learn of me. I was thinking about the value of people teaching me. Last fall, I was sitting out on the front porch. It was just a beginning to get cool and just thinking, meditating, praying, reading scripture, and I happened to glance up, and there are lots of birds that fly around in the mornings in, around our neighborhood, and, and most of the time, if not all the time, they, they travel at least in some kind of group, but that morning, I saw a little tiny bird all by itself. And I think that's why it caught my attention, is because it was so small, and, and it, was, it was isolated from all the other birds, and it was flying around by itself, and eventually it landed on a, the smallest branch on one of the smallest trees that we've recently planted in our yard. And it, when, it, when it lit on the branch, the branch actually began to wobble a bit. Even with a little tiny bird, it was such a small branch. And I figured maybe it landed there because the other birds would fall off of the branch if they tried, and it was safe in that spot. But it was there, and I began to watch it and think about it. And, and the thought struck me, as I'm watching this bird, sort of fascinated with this creature, I thought, you know, God knows everything about that little bird. God knows how much blood is pumping through its veins. God knows how many feathers it has, everywhere it's been, everything about it. And then the thought struck me, how do I know that? How do I know that God knows everything about that little bird? 
Because I remembered in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, in his attempts to help us understand how much God the Father loves us, says, God cares about even the smallest sparrow. And so being in children's ministries and being in youth group and being in Bible studies were in a variety of ways, that truth was reinforced to me. That God loves even the smallest creatures. And so he loves us. in a whole variety of ways to those people who invested themselves in me and I suspect in you. And we keep doing that for each other. That's how we help each other and teach each other and disciple each other. That's the church being the church. It's certainly the picture of the New Testament church. You come to the end of Acts chapter 2, The writer says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayer. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That togetherness. But let's not forget that often God surprises us in the people he brings to teach us. Often the people who we might think least likely are the very ones God uses to teach us. God uses the the weak to teach the strong and the young to teach the old and perhaps the least experienced to teach the more experienced. But followers who are intent on being disciples of Christ don't worry about who's teaching whom. We just come in a spirit of humility to learn. But learning from each other isn't enough. There are others that God has given us, other Christians who help teach us how to be a disciple of Christ. We learn from Christians through the ages. It's people who've gone before us in the faith. Paul writes to the Romans, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And Jesus talks often about the prophets who've gone before and understanding them and the people who've gone before you. Now, the New Testament doesn't present the same kind of of preciseness to worship as the Old Testament does, as we saw last week. But there typically are core elements of, of God's people coming together. Prayer and the reading of scripture. You have singing. You have the proclaimed word and often you have the breaking of bread. But the church has learned through the centuries that we learn better and and we remember better and, and it becomes more memorable to us if we expand some of that and enhance it. It's like when I talk to a couple about their wedding they're planning. I, I say to them, look, it's your wedding. I want you to do what you want. I'll help you through it. Of course, All you really have to do is stand before a couple of people and say, I do, I do, and you're done, and you can go home. I mean, that's all you really have to do. Somebody signs a paper, they said it, he said it, she said it, okay, you can go. But we want more than that. You know, we we want to create a memorable event. We we want to create a a moment that that will will speak to the people who are there with us about about the couple's lives and, and who we are. As Christians, what God has done for us. And so we create a ceremony. And the church fathers have done that for us in many forms and ways. 
We have things like catechism, an ancient form of learning. We've turned our sixth grade Sunday school class into a catechism class where, where the students learn about 100 questions and answers about what we believe. It would be good probably for all of us to go through that. That's why we, we recite the Apostles' Creed in worship. It's a concise, memorable statement about the core things that as Christians we believe. Maybe it would be good for us just to revisit that this morning. In the front of your hymnal, in front inside of your hymnal is the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going we're to recite this together. Let us affirm our faith in this historic affirmation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. That may not have been your tradition to grow up to recite that, and you may feel a little bit uncomfortable saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Of course, understand, that doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church, where Catholic means universal. We're simply stating, we believe that the Church of Christ is bigger than us. It's, it's what the Church of Christ through history and through the world. We're all bound together in Christ. It, it's why we, the ancient understandings. That's why we light candles in worship. It goes back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple when God commanded the Israelites to keep fire burning there 24 hours a day because it was a symbol of His presence with them. And every time they went into the temple and they saw those candles lit, they remembered, God is here. And when we come to worship and we see the candles lit, we're reminded God is here. It's important for us to remember because we so quickly forget. And we think it's about us when it's not. It's about Him. And it's just a subtle, simple reminder. The benediction is another one of those ancient forms that we practice. I suspect that many of you, like me, were raised where your service ended with a closing prayer rather than a benediction. They're not the same. With a closing prayer, you bow your head and you pray. With a benediction, it's a blessing. In a benediction, you you look up and and the person who is pronouncing the benediction pronounces God's blessing upon you. And I'm going to ask you that from now on, when when I say receive the benediction, instead of bowing your head, look up. I want to look you in the eye because I want you to know God blesses you. And you were to receive God's blessing upon your life as you go out from this place. You know, it's our, it's our penchant to forget and towards self-centeredness that, that causes us to, 
to, to utilize and need these things. So we have the church calendar. And the church calendar that, that reminds us of those significant events in the life of Christ, beginning with Advent, where we, in the sense of the prophets, prepare for the coming of Christ. And then Christmas, where we celebrate his birth, the incarnation. And then we move to Epiphany, where we celebrate his manifestation to the world, revealing himself in his baptism and opening the gospel to all the world, including Gentiles. And we move into Lent, that time of contemplating the cross. And then to Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection, that life-changing event. And then we move, after seven weeks of Easter, to Pentecost, where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And it seems to me, despite the objections, that anything that, that keeps in front of us the life and the events of Christ is a good thing. To remind us that our faith is not about us primarily, it's about Christ. And that we, our lives are wrapped around him, not him around us. And we come together as the church to celebrate him. I know any, are all these things essential to worship? Do, can we live without them? No. But they're helpful. And they can be ways of reminding us of all that God has done for us. And all that God wants to do for us. But not only do we learn from each other and from the church in the past. We learn from the church universal today. It's important for us to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than us. You know, I, I read a story of, of a man who went back to his little small hometown in Tennessee. And he went to church with a friend. It wasn't the church he'd grown up in, but another one. And he noticed that the church had stained glass windows. And it surprised him because it was a small church. Didn't seem to have a lot of money, but the windows were very nice. And uh, he noticed also that there were nameplates on all the windows, and they were all names he didn't recognize. It surprised him because it's a small town. He pretty much knew everybody. He didn't recognize even one of the names. So after the service, he he spoke to his friend about it and said, I don't understand. Boy, how'd you get the windows? And he said, well, you know, originally they were made in Italy for a church in St. Louis. But when they got, when they arrived, they didn't fit. So they advertised them real cheap, and we snatched them up. We put them in, and, and this gentleman said, well, okay, but what about the names? Am I just missing something? What's going on? He said, well, the names were all the people who were in the church in St. Louis. And he said, you know, we, we he said, well, why didn't you change them? He said, well, we talked about that, and we decided we'd leave them because it reminded us that the church is bigger than us. We, we need to be reminded of that. Church is bigger than us. Actually, the church is growing far more rapidly outside of the West than it is within the West. And part of being humble disciples is acknowledging that the church outside of these walls in our county and outside of these walls in our world has something to teach us that we need to learn. It's why a couple of times a month we're introducing some elements of global worship into our service. 
even something as simple as reading the scripture in German might remind us of our brothers and sisters who are worshiping in Germany. You know, we need to be reminded that we don't have all the answers. That God's church is bigger than just us. You know, every November when we take a time to pray for the persecuted church, it always makes me feel a little bit awkward. Not that I don't want to pray for them. I do want to pray for them. I feel awkward because knowing all that they have been through and are going through, I feel unworthy to pray for them. Like, they ought to be praying for us. I mean, they are far more like the New Testament church than we are. When you read the book of Acts, you see what the New Testament Christians went through. It looks a lot more like people in the persecuted church than us. We need each other. We need to learn from each other. But it's not always easy to move from being teacher to student. It's an act of humility. And to acknowledge that others who have not known Christ as long as us have something to teach us is an act of humble submission. But that's what it means to be a disciple. It intrigues me that in in the 15th chapter of Acts, the Jerusalem church, the center of the church, gets together and they create a a document for the rest of the church about how to handle Gentiles and Jews worshiping together. They set the standard. They, They create the edict and send it out. But it's only a few chapters later that Paul says he came to Jerusalem from some of those same young churches with gifts for the church in Jerusalem that was struggling. And it says something about the Jerusalem Christians that they received these gifts with joy and thankfulness. There's something in that of, of humility for what it means to be the church of Christ in this world. But eventually, being a learning church means that we take what we learn here out into the world there. After describing the the discipleship practices of the Jerusalem Christians, at the end of Acts 2, it says that the church enjoyed the favor of all the people. Their discipleship is taking them out into the world, and their message of truth is being received positively by the people. Now, it isn't always received positively, but they keep going out with it. And discipleship isn't just learning about Christ. It is being like Christ. And if our knowledge doesn't affect how we live, we have to question our discipleship. If learning doesn't lead to service, maybe we don't really understand discipleship. The quality of our lives is what proves the effectiveness of our discipleship. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. And in the last statement of, of, this, of this vision statement, the last bullet, he talks about being people who take on Christ's suffering as our redemptive and, responsive, and response to sin, to sin and evil. As Christ has done this for us, so we do it for the world. So we step into situations, we willingly 
take the heat for other people. And as we go out into the world, when people look at us, does it make them want to, does it draw them closer to Christ or away from Christ? You know, learning of Jesus is a radical, all-of-life kind of discipleship. I've been thinking about this as, as I ponder the, the political landscape in our country right now and the spiraling incivility of the political discussions. And too often, Christians are right in the middle of the incivility. I hear it, and I read it as Christians talk about not just their disagreement with the president, but their hatred of the president. And I, and I heard it in the same way from Christians from our, with our former president, who were on the other side of the aisle. And it seems as though this, the spirit of incivility is spiraling out of control in our world, and Christians seem to be right in the middle of it. We have decided, we've decided that we're, we're going to use the kingdom of God to leverage our position in this world by using the tactics of the kingdom of this world. And so we protest and we fight and we use vitriolic language and we character assassination and we exaggerate in order to get our point and to win the battle. And it's no wonder people look at us and think we're just another political action committee. We're just another option that's really no different than any other option. It just depends on your ideology and your mindset. Pick which one you want. There's no difference. And the goal of our discipleship in this world is somehow to be a countercultural presence that doesn't look anything like all the other options. But it's a radical option that, in the words of Andy Crouch, we create a new culture. It's a radical option of Christ-like love and compassion and truth and hope. A radical option that's about Christ and that looks like Christ. And even when we talk about political hot-button issues, which we should and we need to do, we do it in a spirit of truth and love and grace and compassion because as disciples of the one who loves all people, we care about our opponents just as much as we care about the issues we may disagree about. And when we begin to live that way, we're starting to understand the full essence and the purpose of Christian discipleship. Does that mean we're going to give up power in this world? Of course it does. Does that mean that, that our rights will be squashed and that we might be taken for grant, advantage of and mocked? Of course it does. But disciples know that the power of this world doesn't win. The power of Christ wins. The power of the cross wins. The power of the, of the lamb who was slain wins. The power of Christ-filled disciples wins. Discipleship is more than learning concepts It's not just about being people who know about God. Christian disciples are people who allow God to affect every area and detail of life. And that's the symbolism of taking the light 
out of the sanctuary at the end of the service. Because it reminds us that Jesus not only said that he was the light of the world, but that we are the light of the world. And we take our light out into the world in the grace and mercy and power of Christ. At the heart of discipleship is hearing the call of Christ to come and surrender ourselves to him, to lay aside our belief that we can do all of this on our own, that we can live life, that we can be disciples any other way than laying down our life for Christ. Now, I would argue that real learning cannot take place without a humble spirit. If you're going to learn anything, you have to come to the point of acknowledging that somebody else knows something that you don't, and you need to learn that. And that's the spirit of a learning church. We want to be a learning church. Making disciples here in order to go into the world for Christ out there. And so whether you attend this church year-round or you're here as a guest or you're here as a student for the few months that you're in school, I want to ask you to pray with me and to commit yourself with me that God would make us this kind of church. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. Make us a church that submits to your word and submits to other Christians and submits to you to be your presence in this world. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.